Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode. We know that the state of the security clearance process is constantly changing. Jason Miller Pack PMO said earlier this year that this year would be the most significant year for personnel security and vetting reform. We've kind of been tracking that over at clearancejobs.com with all of the trusted workforce 2.0 initiatives. The state of security is certainly evolving, it's changing, and we're also coming up a lot of against a lot of workforce issues with a great resignation. On all of that heady note, I am so thrilled to be talking with Lisa Reedy. She is the VP of security at GDIT, has been with GADIT for a number of years. She's also the chair of the Industrial Security Committee with AIA. And again, has just been working in around this industry for so long, brings a wealth of knowledge has admitted that she does not talk to a lot of people publicly about these topics. So we are glad that she is willing to chat with us. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show and for chatting with me today. Thank you, Lindy. I really look forward to this opportunity. Thanks. So we recently did an article on clearance jobs and talked about how the total number of clearances is going up. That's just a number that we kind of track over at clearance jobs. Thanks a lot to DCSA's progress improving security clearance vetting times. We're getting more people funneled into this, but the actual in-access population is going down. So we've been a part of a lot of conversations and speculation around that. Is it COVID-19? Is it the great resignation? Is it the growing of the workforce? Data cleanup with j to DIS? Kind of talk about the size of the cleared population. Is that something that you look at or consider in your role? Is that a trend that you're seeing? Or do you think there are any factors that play into the size of the cleared workforce today? Lindy, I think it's everything that you mentioned. I think we have definitely been hit by COVID, the great resignation, the green workforce. However, I don't think that the impact is as dire as it's made out to be. And I think that is due to the fact that DCSA has had incredible successes in improving the clearance timelines. Also, there's the Trusted Workforce 2.0 efficiencies. So with these marked improvements to the overall clearance quality and processes, it allows us to move people into access when we need them more efficiently and in a timely manner. And because of this, industry can take advantage of a greater candidate pool by tapping into the uncleared population. For instance, it allows us to take advantage of young people getting out of school who would be willing to wait a couple of months for a job that requires a clearance. Yeah, you bring in the student population. I think that's big. We just published a testimonial this week on clearance jobs from a student who had gotten actually a position through clearance jobs and talked about that process. Maybe can you speak to that kind of this when you're looking at the buckets of where you're bringing in personnel, do you have that flexibility to bring on a, a student and get them cleared? And how is that maybe different from onboarding somebody who already has a clearance? Well, it's not just the students who we can onboard from the uncleared population, but in speaking with students, it is really important that we educate them. We go to a lot of different job fairs at colleges, but we educate them on the clearance process. And actually, that is true for anybody who's coming from the uncleared population. I think knowledge is key for them to understand what it takes to go through the process and to be prepared, because as you know, it's a very long application to fill out, helps them be prepared to fill it out correctly, to be able to work through it in a much more efficient and better 
better way. I think that ties into the piece that we talk about at Clearance Jobs sometimes. We get a lot of pushback. Do people really want to work in these careers, these national security careers, when they can go work for Meta or another commercial sector company? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think working in a job that requires a clearance is kind of, to my opinion, second to none. I've been in it for over 25 years. There's something about the patriotic values, the sense of duty, and the strong feeling of pride you get. However, I realize it may not be for everybody, but I think there's a lot of people who may not realize that they could be part of that. And maybe they look more to the commercial sector because they don't think that they could get a clearance. And there's so many ways to be able to go through the process again and to be able to help them understand what is needed and to be able to go through the clearance process. And given that the clearance now, you can get an interim clearance within a matter of weeks and final clearance, two to three months. So that is very different than we were years ago. Yeah. So talk about the interim piece. Working across the GovCon community on this, I do sometimes get pushback on that because I say, hey, interims are great, but not all of our contracts will allow people to work on interim. Is that the case at GAT as well? Are there certain contracts that you have to have that fully adjudicated clearance before you can put someone on there? Are there contracts that allow folks to work on an interim? And how do you kind of work all that out as a security apparatus to put people in the right places? There definitely are jobs that do require that final clearance. Without a doubt, that is true. However, we do have a fair amount of contracts that you can work on an interim clearance. And as we were talking about before, there is a limit to our current candidate pool. And so what we can do by utilizing the uncleared population, expand that candidate pool. And that allows us to also ensure we are hiring the absolute best candidate, resulting in a more diverse workforce and a variety of ideas and perceptions. And how we do this, we do it by leveraging the successful efforts of the government, as we've been talking about with the processing timelines. And yes, when we have that opportunity to bring in an uncleared individual into a role that requires them to be cleared, we are doing it. And it's good for everybody involved, the customer, the mission, the candidate, and yes, GDIT too. And at GDIT, we believe that having diverse perspectives makes us stronger as an organization. And we believe that employees, hence the missions they support, thrive when a person can bring their whole selves to the workplace every day. And innovation happens when diverse people come together and we want to bring to our customers and communities the very best that we can. So by being able to expand the candidate pool, we are better able to build this diverse workforce and support our customers. Now, when we are working with a candidate who's never received a clearance before, it's important, again, as we talked, that they have a clear understanding of the process, and especially the fact that obtaining a clearance is a review of the whole person. Let me expand on that, if you will. Under the whole person concept, an adjudicator, the government official who's reviewing the security clearance case, will evaluate the individual's eligibility for a security clearance by considering the totality of his or her conduct in all relevant circumstances. Most of the time, no single issue will prevent a person from getting a clearance. Remember, getting a clearance means you're deemed responsible and trustworthy to handle national security information, not that you never have made a mistake. Bottom line, we don't want people opting out just because they don't think they will get a clearance. So if we think that we have found the best person and they are from the uncleared population, we are going to go forward to try to make that work. Again, not all contracts can do this, but we have a fair amount of contracts that do allow for interim clearances and interim clearances can be obtained in a matter of weeks. So to me, that's a win-win for everybody. Man, Lisa, I feel like I've met my match with your passion for the security clearance process. <laughs> this is me as well. I so care about this industry and putting the right people into it. I do think that there are people who want to pursue national security careers. I think that that education piece that you hit on is huge. If people understand the opportunities that they will get, the unique workforce that they will get to be a part of, and then realize that piece too, that the security clearance process is not a perfect person process. It is all 
honestly a process for the persistent and the people who are willing to do it, right? Only there is the education piece of, yes, you will have to fill out the 130-ish pages of the SF-86, but it's not as, as invasive, I think, as a lot of people think. It's just a lot of paperwork. And I, yeah, I just think that's so key, understanding that if you are willing to put in the effort, this is a great career for you. But yeah, I mean, is GDIT finding success in, in finding people and getting them through that process with your college outreach or just outreach into uncleared populations? And then, yeah, do you have any maybe tips on the education piece? What takeaways you would want to give to people saying, hey, yes, this is what I wish you knew about this process before you started? Yes. And yes, we are having success in it. I think that that success will continue to grow. It was not very long ago that we were talking about long timelines. So this is still something that is relatively new to us, but we are having success and this is important. We are doing a lot with our outreach. We have a huge intern program that we do every year. We work very hard with our interns to have them learn about the industry and then hope that they'll come back after they finish their college careers. As for the education piece, to me, the more that you can do to explain the process to an individual, and you have to always realize that they really are starting from ground zero, the better off you are. So as you mentioned it, the 130 page form, and you're putting out all of your information and having them feel comfortable that their information isn't being spread around the organization. It is used for the purposes of getting a clearance and given to the government for their investigation, and that they can share with the security officer if they have questions on things, if they want to be able to put information down. And I say, you know, as long you're not a threat to anybody, it's kind of like talking to your priest. You're saying that information to them. They're not going to go spread it around the organization. It really is there to help them get the paperwork in so that the government can do the investigation and then move forward with the decision and hopefully determine that they're trustworthy and responsible and be able to have a career in this. Yeah. And then definitely look to other resources too. I think for clearance jobs, one of the things that we really love is answering some of those questions. Your security officer is always the best person to talk to if you have a question, but the internet does exist now, which yes. is like, <laughs> remember when you had to fill out an SF-86 pre-internet, pre-Google search? I mean, I feel like that would have been stressful. Now you can go back. Doha publishes all of its cases. I think Doha is a fantastic resource. And we put those in layman's terms over at clearance jobs. So if you're wondering if someone like you, quote unquote, could get a security clearance, there is actually some more information out there that you can find and you can look up cases and you can see what's going on out there and you don't have to have this shroud of mystery or around the security clearance process. And then like you said, your manager and your security officer are different people and the SF86, you know, what you put into the equip or eventually e-app is not, you know, going directly to your boss. It's going specifically to the government to be a part of this process. I think that's something that's worth people knowing. So we're kind of talking about misconceptions. Are there any other misconceptions about the clearance process that you think applicants or candidates should know about? Well, I think you kind of touched on one going to talk to Doha. I think that's a great idea to be able to have people go and look at some of the other cases. And what they'll see is that one of the greatest mitigators is time. So again, the clearance process is not a pass-fail. So it's looking at that whole person concept. So if there was something that happened in your past, and it's been a long time and you're a different person, then a lot of times you'll see things like that are mitigated and that's no longer an issue. So I think that's a great idea to recommend for people to go there who may have some of those concerns and they can see that how things are mitigated. The other thing is that it comes to mental health. I think that is a topic that has been coming up more and more recently. And I can't stress it enough that reporting and getting treatment for mental health is a positive. It's a sign of sound judgment. The U.S. government and companies are putting significant efforts into removing the stigma of mental health treatment and having people realize that it's not about the illness, it's about getting treatment, and you can still hold security clearance, that you just need to make sure you report it, you get the treatment, and then we all move forward in those cases. 
Yeah, I think clarifying the changes around mental health are big. I know GDIT has had a big push around that. I haven't even had a chance to, to fangirl out my GDIT. I got a GDIT yoga mat, Lisa. Oh, that's I, awesome. I love it. Have you gotten one? I feel like I've, I feel like I'm, I'm basically, a, I, yeah, I almost work for the company at this point because I gave, I was doing yoga outside with my GDIT yoga mat from a recent event. You really had the wellness push down. And I think that's so important in national security. We're all kind of coming off of this post-COVID, whatever that is, you know, a lot of stress and anxiety and anxiousness. And just knowing that, you know, our employers, they tout the line of belonging or bringing your whole self to work. And some of that is, it's okay not to be okay, right? As GDID would say. And so providing information about that, that also applies to national security workers. We are whole people, a microcosm, have the same problems that other people do. And seeking counseling or proactivity around any issues is always, you know, like you said, in the adjudicative guidelines, one of the biggest mitigators. Okay. Okay, so I can tell that you are a fellow fan of all things security clearance wonky policy. So I have to talk a little bit about Trusted Workforce 2.0 before I let you go because we're kind of pushing the narrative a little bit, but a lot of the undercurrent is taking place behind the scenes. So continuous vetting, though, is fully rolled out. I know there's updates to the kind of investigative guidelines being pushed out and a lot of things happening. Kind of what is your pulse point on Trusted Workforce 2.0 and how you're seeing the impact of it as a security professional? I am a huge fan of Trusted Workforce 2.0. I think it is moving in the right direction. It is obviously going to take time for it to be completely fully rolled out. But the fact that we are having people in continuous evaluation and being able to check on them continuously versus the check every five years or 10 years if you had a secret clearance is a huge step in the right direction. It also, it makes the mobility of people so much easier. Once they're in the trusted vetted workforce, for them to be moving around into other areas is going to be advantageous because that is what it is about. People want mobility. People want to have different job changes. And this is a way for that to be able to happen. Yeah. And I think like I said, we see the continuous vetting piece. I think it's kind of, it's a lot of it's happening, you know, behind the scenes. So you're seeing, it's not necessarily very transparent to candidates, correct? Like as they are enrolled in continuous vetting, do you think that will shift or is that a part of maybe the trust workforce 2.0, the fact that things haven't broken yet, right? Like they've been able to make all of these changes. It's been a pretty seamless process for candidates. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that if it's working well, it's going to stay seamless to candidates. Because in all honesty, you get enrolled into the different feeds of information that are coming in. And if there's no information coming in, there's not much going to come back out for candidates to do. However, if something does hit and there are some questions, the secure officer is made aware who reaches out to the individual, whether it be a candidate or whether it be an individual who's been working for several years and who's enrolled into um, continuous vetting. They ask them the relevant questions, get the facts and submit it to the government for adjudication and for review of it. But again, in most cases, there is no information coming in, which is a positive. And so it is very transparent to the individuals. And I think that proactive piece is huge. A key takeaway, anytime I talk to security professionals like yourself, Lisa, you're just fantastic and so nice. So kind of like, why are people scared of their security officers? Maybe because they don't know who they are. But when you actually talk to them, they really, they care about the security of, of the workforce. And I think that proactivity, and it's a positive step. And security professionals are often mitigating worst case scenarios. So if you can give them the positive scenario of, hey, this thing happened and reporting it in advance, because again, especially with continuous vetting, otherwise they're going to find 
find out about it on the other end, having the government contact them and let them know that this alert was was verified. And that certainly is not as great of a look. Well, I feel like we've really come full circle, which is pretty much my interview narrative in all of my conversations. But was there anything else we didn't touch on related to this whole state of the security clearance workforce, the numbers, candidate attraction, or trusted workforce 2.0 that we, that we didn't talk about already, Lisa? I think we hit on just about everything. I just really would encourage someone who would like a job or career dealing with national security to not be intimidated by the fact it might take getting a clearance and to be looking into it. Perfect. I love it. I can talk to you. Our interviews can go super fast, Lisa, because you are a fast talker, just much like myself. So <laughs> thank you so much, Lisa Reedy, GDIT and chair of the Industrial Security Committee at AIA. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Lindy. It's been a pleasure. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.